We started a series in the book of Genesis about a year ago, maybe a little longer than a year ago. Um, and we've been working our way through it, and we're almost done. There's 50 chapters in Genesis, if you didn't know. Uh, so that's where we're at. Genesis 49. Oh, I need my notes. Uh, I'm going to keep saying this for a couple more weeks at least because uh, it's new that we're back in the building. It's awesome to be back in the building. Uh, we have been renting the parking lot over here on First and Monroe that's across the street from the Knitting Factory in uh, Brooklyn Deli. Um, if you get a ticket in there during um, church, bring it to me. They, they usually are very good about taking care of those. and um, So yeah, we pay for it so you don't have to. So don't, don't forget, if you have a friend that you bring or something like that and they get a ticket... Bring them, give it to me. That'd be great. So Genesis 49, uh, we are going to pick it up. And the events that we're going to cover today uh, are going to be surrounding really what is the beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, that phrase may kind of ring a bell. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you haven't. Uh, the nation of Israel, you've probably all heard of because that's a nation that exists today. Uh, unless maybe you're like super... Uh, not paying attention and like you went to public school and you're like, I don't know, geography. But there is a country, it's called Israel. It hasn't always been around. It started in 1948. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But before that, that land was a country of Israel about 2,000 years ago. And that country was made up of 12 tribes. The 12 tribes of Israel, maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. Pretty big deal in the Bible, but today is where we're going to get basically the foundations of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is where they start. We have no 12 tribes of Israel before this point in your Bible, which, you know, we're only on page 25, so that makes sense. There hasn't been a lot uh, going on before this. Um, but if you remember, when we got to the very, when we started at the beginning of the book of Genesis, God created the whole world, right? And He created everything perfect, and then He put man and woman in this perfect creation of his, and he let them loose. And they screwed it up super early on, like page three of your Bible. They're like, nah, we know God told us to do this, but what does he know? And they did their own thing. And it ruined everything. Infection, sin corrupted every single thing that God had created. And mankind from that point on had this sinful nature where we know what we should do, we just don't do it, right? And so God came down and he said, you guys, I can't believe you. I'm going to make a whole bunch of rules. You need to follow them or you're all going to hell. No, that's not actually what he says. Some of you are like, wait a second. No, that's not in your Bible. He actually comes down and he says, yeah, there's going to be huge consequences to what you did. But I'm going to send a savior. I'm going to send the seed of woman. In Genesis chapter 3, like I said, super early on in your Bible, like basically the first thing that happens with mankind, uh, God promises to send a Savior. And so the rest of history is humans going, we need a Savior. We need someone to help. We, this has to get fixed. And so uh, fast forward in your Bible to Genesis chapter 12, and God comes down and he picks a name a man named Abram. He later changes his name to Abraham. Maybe you know that. And he says to Abram, he says, hey, Abram, uh, you're special because I'm going to send that savior of the world through your family. Uh, so just so you know that, I'm also going to make your family into a nation of peoples. And I'm going to give your family this promised land, which is in present day Israel. And so he gives these three promises to Abraham. Uh, and the only problem is Abraham and his wife Sarah only have one child. That's not exactly a nation, 
So they're like, we only have one kid. What are we going to do here? And so God says, don't worry about it. This is my plan. So uh, that one son's name is Isaac. Isaac marries uh, someone named Rebecca. Uh, they have two kids, which, hey, we're getting closer, but it's still not a nation, right? So, I mean, if we're, gonna, we're sneaking up on it, God. Like, we'll get there, right? So uh, there are two kids, Jacob and Esau. God picks Jacob out of the two of them and says, you are the one that I'm going to fulfill the promises that I made to Abraham through. Your family is going to become a nation. Your family is going to live in the promised land. Your family is going to bring forth the Messiah. And so Jacob then has 12 sons. And so, hey, now we're getting somewhere, right? And so before Jacob dies, God puts on his heart, this is actually like literally the last thing he does before he dies. God puts on his heart, he says, I want you to address your 12 sons, but I want you to address them not as individuals, not as just sons, but as nations, as tribes within a nation, sorry, as, as groups of people. And so that's what we're going to cover today. Genesis chapter 49, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. So it says this, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Now Israel, uh, if you went with us through the book of Genesis, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And for the rest of the book, sometimes uses Jacob, sometimes uses Israel. So Jacob and Israel are the same guy, if you were wondering. But I want to point this out because we see this introduction to what's about to happen. And it's this, uh, it's definitely a different type of uh, literature than what we've been going through so far. Now, that sounds like a big kind of complicated idea, but it's not that complicated. Whenever you read something, you try to figure out what type of literature you're reading, right? Like, what's the author trying to do here? And there's lots of different types within your Bible. Sometimes it's just narrative. It's just a story. It's just telling the history. This is what happened. This guy went here. This guy went here. This guy went here. Sometimes it's instruction, right? You should do this. You shouldn't do that, right? Sometimes uh, it's, it reads like a law like a book of law, right? This shall not happen. And if it does, then there's these consequences. And like, it's like a legal document type of thing. Sometimes it's poetic, right? You get in the Psalms, it's lots of like figurative language. And as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longs for you. It's like this beautiful poetry type stuff. Uh, sometimes it's like wisdom, like they're kind of like catchy, witty type of saying. So every time you start to read your Bible, you should say like, oh, like, what am I reading here? And so far we've been reading only narrative, right? It's just been the story. It's just been the history. It's just been like, this is what happened. This guy went here. And almost never at any time does the, the author kind of slow down and interpret the things. God doesn't break into the story and be like, this is what you need to learn. And so what we've been doing as we've been going through the stories, we've been looking at the character of God and the character of God as he relates and reacts to his people. Because he doesn't slow down very much and tell us black and white what we should or should not be learning from this. And today we get this kind of like, uh, not a shift, this is still narrative, this is telling what's happened, but this is a, a God-initiated type of thing that's happening with Jacob right here. As he's about to speak to his sons, he's like, wait, wait, like this is led by God, this is initiated by God, and so this is, uh, in your Bible, what's known as prophecy, okay? Now, some of you hear that word, and immediately you have like terrible thoughts of like, oh, great, here we go, right? We're gonna have some weird, like, you know, 
mystical. Why? Because lots of times throughout the history of the world, people have disguised their craziness under the word prophecy, right? So they have all sorts of weird things and they say, oh, I'm a prophet or this is prophetic or thus saith the Lord, you know, and you, you get a bunch of weirdos that hide under the word prophecy. But prophecy is actually in your Bible a ton. And this is actually a prophetic chapter. And so before we get too far into what it actually says, let's talk about prophecy a little bit so you don't have a weird idea about it when we talk about it. First thing I want to tell you about prophecy is prophecy is a gifting of God to speak forth his word. Okay? It's just like God has a message. I'm going to tell you the message. Now, for some of you, you're like, wait, I thought prophecy was when you told the future, right? And you got pictures of like some guy standing on like, like, a, like a psychic. He's like, it's kind of fuzzy, but there's someone in here who has a hangnail, and God wants to deliver you. to right? And that, that's not always necessarily prophecy. It's not always necessarily telling the future. It is speaking forth the word of God. And the word of God sometimes has to do with the future, but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it has to do with the past. Sometimes it has to do with the present. Sometimes it's revealing of something that nobody else knows. So prophecy doesn't always have to do with the future, but it is always the word of God being spoken forth. Uh, the next thing you need to know uh, about prophecy is that prophecy is not rare. In fact, about a third of your Bible is prophecy. A third. Think about that. Like one out of every three words that you read in your Bible is prophetic. That's a lot, right? I went to public school. I still know that's a lot, right? Like there's like there's a lot of time where God is giving specific messages like this is from me. You need to know this, right? So if you think prophecy is weird and like rare, it's not rare. It's really common, actually. It's almost a third of your Bible. And the fourth thing and final thing, prophecy, because it originates with God, because it's not rare at all, uh, the people who prophesy and the way God prophesies sometimes are not aware that prophecy is happening. Now, that sounds weirder than it really is. You're like, wait, people say things they don't understand? Uh, kind of and kind of not, okay? Uh, this happens actually all the time on Sunday mornings. I read the word of God. I, I am preaching to you. And then someone comes up to me afterwards and was like, I just really needed that message on forgiveness today. And I'm like, my message wasn't on forgiveness. It was on Genesis 49, right? What happened? I spoke what God put on my heart through my study the, during the week. God used his prophetic gifting to when it hit your heart, the, the parts about forgiveness stuck. And it was exactly what you needed here. It was like the Holy Spirit was just speaking. How many of you have had that in a church at some point where you're just like, God's talking to me? Yeah, that's prophecy, right? The Spirit of God is empowering the words to like speak to you about a certain thing. It's like, hey, this is for you right now. Okay, so that's prophecy. Okay, so it's not weird, spooky, like sometimes it can be, right? There could be a, you know, someone that you didn't know come up on the street and was like, God wants you to do whatever. Like that's not beyond God's uh, repertoire, but usually it's way more natural than you'd expect. Usually you just show up to church and you read the Bible or you hear a worship song or you have a conversation with a friend and you're like, whoa, God just like spoke to me. And so sometimes, you know, like wives will bring their husbands who aren't really churchgoers and I'll like preach a message and like they'll come up to me afterwards. They'll be like, did she tell you I was coming? 
Like, no, I just, I'm just here. Genesis 40. Now, last week we did Genesis 48. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't prepare for you. And like, what's happening? The, the spirit of God is convicting hearts, right? Prophetically. And so sometimes people will be speaking and they, they don't even necessarily know that God is using that as prophecy. So all that being said, we talked about what prophecy is. Let's jump in and see what Jacob actually says to his son. So we're going to start in verse three. It says this, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So right away, we see that prophecy is not just telling the future, but actually this prophecy is addressing the past. Uh, and it's also interpreting Reuben's present situation in light of the consequences of the past. This is prophetic in that the wisdom that God is illuminating the situation, but it's not necessarily about the future. And so if you remember when, you, uh, when we studied through the book of Genesis, uh, as we got back into Genesis 35, uh, Reuben actually slept with uh, one of his father's wives. Yeah, it's, it's as awful as it sounds, right? There was a very complicated situation going on with Jacob. Jacob married two women, uh, Leah and Rachel. Uh, Leah had a bunch of kids. Rachel wasn't able to have kids. And so uh, because Rachel wasn't able to have kids, she was like in this competition with her sister. So they had these servants, these maidservants, that would like help them. And so Rachel actually took her maidservant and gave her to her husband, Jacob, and was like, uh, get her pregnant, and then when she has the baby, I will raise it like it's my own, and then I'll be able to like compete with my sister in having children. So she did that, and her maidservant actually had two kids, uh, and, and she kind of raised them on her own, and then Leah stopped having kids, so she was all fired up, so she took her maidservant and gave her to Jacob, so her maidservant had two kids, and then finally, at the very end, after like 20 years, Rachel, who wasn't able to get pregnant at the beginning, had two more kids. So Jacob ends up having 12 children through from four different women, only two of whom he was actually married to. But Reuben, who is the firstborn, ends up later in life, when he's like 30 or 40 years old, sleeping with Rachel's maidservant. So this woman whom his dad had slept with and had two children, he sleeps with her, which is as gross as it sounds, right? So uh, they're referencing that period of Reuben's life here. And it's interesting because this is like, it's illuminating the present situation that Reuben's in in light of these consequences of his character. Right? So he starts off and he says, Reuben, you're my firstborn. You're my might. You're preeminent. You should have the first fruits of my strength. You should represent our family. And this was a big deal back in those days, right? The firstborn would represent the family. You should be the dignity and honor and legacy of our family, except for, verse 4, your character is unstable as water. Your character can't handle the weight of the opportunity that was in front of you. Like, you forfeited all of this. Like, this incredible weight, this incredible opportunity, this incredible blessing was right in front of you, and your character couldn't handle it. Do you see how the message from God here, the prophecy, it speaks into the situation and it illuminates this connection between Reuben's 
unstable character, which manifests itself in sexual immorality and, and betrayal of his family relationships, and now draws a parallel to the consequences of sin that he is now experiencing. This happens all the time in prophecy where God convicts you of something in your heart that you might think is unrelated to your problems. Right? You come into church, you're like, man, my life's really hard. I don't know what's going on. I'm just having trouble at work. And like, my marriage is not that great. And like, I don't know. What's... And then God's like, well, this thing, it needs to change. This thing that's going on in your life, you can't allow that to control you. Your character is deficient in this area. And what do we do as humans? Right? We are incredibly skilled at ignoring the obvious. We're like, nah, that's not it. Yeah, I'm looking at porn. That's probably not it. Yeah, I'm fudging on my taxes. That's probably not it. Yeah, I'm keeping these things from my husband. That's probably not it. Yeah, I'm like excessively spending. That's, that's not my problem, right? Yeah, I'm a big gossip. No big deal. Yeah, I'm kind of lazy. That's, that's not my problem, God. It's got to be something else. Nobody's ever done that in here, right? Just me, <coughs> right? We do this thing where we're like, no, this isn't the problem. And God says, no, that actually is the problem. And we do it all the time. Uh, people come to us for counseling or something like that. And they're like, oh, our marriage is just really bad. And then we find out like, well, dude, you're looking at porn. Yeah, but it's the marriage. She doesn't talk to me nice. You're looking at porn. Like that's ruining your marriage. Yeah, but I think she she's triggering me. By the way, I hate the word trigger. <laughs> I'm about to soapbox right now because now we like, we have a whole generation of people that if we use the word trigger, somehow it's not my fault. It's like, yeah, well, I was, I probably shouldn't be mad, but I was triggered. Can't help it. So, you know, soapbox over. Anyway, God does this all the times in prophecy where he draws this connection between this dysfunctional aspect of your life or this place where your character is like mutated and, and dwarfed or not growing or unstable as water. And he says, hey, this is affecting your entire life. Like your being like is supposed to be whole. And if part of it is messed up, like that's going to affect the entirety of it. Like if I cut off your leg, you're like, it's really hard to lift stuff with my arms. Yeah, you only have one leg. Like, no, 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 I don't think that's a problem. Maybe I need to do curls or something. No, you're missing a leg. It's really hard to stand on one leg and lift things up, right? And so this is illuminating what's going on in Reuben's life. He forfeited this incredible opportunity that was in front of him. It's almost like, you know, when you're in high school and you have like a really like nice friend that's a girl and she's like she's like normal looking she's not ugly or whatever she's just like she's she's a good girl and she has the worst boyfriend ever and like everybody else can see it We're like that girl is a jerk dump him she's like I just don't know I love him you know and then like she comes to school sad all the time and everybody's like I know why you're sad your boyfriend's a jerk right and everybody else around can see it but she can't see it Nobody knows what I'm talking about, right? Everybody knows what I'm talking about, right? You look at these people and you're like, I know exactly what's wrong with you. Why don't you know what's wrong with you? And like, that's what God is illuminating here to Reuben. He's like, Reuben, I want what's best. I wanted to bless you with the dignity and power and the legacy, but your unstable character and your refusal to repent from it is killing you. It's forfeiting this incredible opportunity that you missed out on. So if Reuben doesn't have the character to handle the responsibility, then this would naturally fall to the next son in line, uh, who would be Simeon. So let's see who's next. Verse five, Simeon and Levi are brothers. So Simeon is second in line. Levi is third in line. They should receive the blessing, or Simeon should. 
But look at what it says at the end of verse 5. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, or my glory not be joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. In their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and the wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So next in line should have been Simeon, and then after Simeon should have been Levi. But Simeon and Levi also had severe character defects that would not allow them to inherit this legacy and this blessing. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 34, uh, their sister got raped, sexually assaulted, right? And so Simeon and Levi did this thing, and they said, oh, well, we'll let you marry our sister if you get circumcised. The whole town's got to get circumcised, though, a couple hundred people. And they go, okay, we'll do it. And so the leader of the town's like, hey, I really want to marry this girl. Like, so we're all going to get circumcised. So old men are getting circumcised, which couldn't have been fun, right? And so then it says Simeon and Levi waited until three days later when everybody was sore and then went in there with swords and killed every male, just slaughtered them all, right? Innocent people. Yes, what happened to your sister was awful. Yes, this was horrible and terrible. But you have multiplied the awfulness of the situation by what you did, by your lack of restraint in your anger. Like you didn't make the situation better. You made it many times worse by your anger. You think you were helping. You were not helping at all. You're killing innocent people. And it says, because of that, because of your violence, because of your anger, because of your lack of restraint in dealing with that, they also will not inherit the blessing. They also will not carry on the legacy. They also will not hold this incredible opportunity that's been put in front of them. And these first two situations that have been addressed by this prophecy have to do with this idea that character, or more accurately, lack of character, cannot be isolated in one area of your life. It, it, it addresses the entirety of your life. Think of anger, right? In the, in the situation of these two. If you had two brothers who had slaughtered a town full of innocent people for revenge, how comfortable would you be with them leading your family? Oh, yeah, that's Uncle Simeon. You know, he killed that one group of people, but they deserved it, kind of, most of them. No, like people aren't stupid, right? People who struggle with anger, the people around them are very nervous. Like you're punching stuff and throwing stuff and putting holes in walls. It's only a matter of time until I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time and I'm a victim of that violence. Everybody knows that. People aren't dumb, right? So when you see these outbursts of anger, this uncontrolled anger, people are like, I don't know. That's not a good sign. It's obviously not a good sign. Sin doesn't stay in its compartment. It infects and spreads. Like sin doesn't play fair. It controls everything, right? And, and, and Reuben and Simeon and Levi are all learning this. So here we are, three sons in. Out of the 12 sons that we're going to totally deal with today, and the prophecy from God has exposed all three so far for their sinful character. They have forfeited the honor of the firstborn and carrying on of God's plan for the family. And so here we go with the fourth son in line, and look at what Jacob has to say to his fourth son, Judah. He says, verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons 
Shuns is not a word. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth are whiter than milk." So where Reuben and Simeon and Levi forfeited their opportunity, Judah carries on the honor and dignity of the family and is blessed as the one who will carry the legacy of the family forward. And so not only does Jacob bless him and say, you're the one that is going to carry on the legacy of the family, you're the one that is going to take hold of this incredible opportunity, but then he uses a bunch of old-time blessings, like things that people... 4,000 years ago thought were cool, but we don't really think are cool today, like eyes being darker than wine and teeth whiter than milk. Like nobody cares about that today. But back in the day, that was like saying, you are awesome, right? So that's what, if you're reading that and going, what the heck is he talking about? Yeah, it's 4,000 years ago when this was written. So, you know, they thought different stuff was cooler. But anyway, for the first time, we begin to see this prophetic word start to talk about the future a little bit right? He talks about your father's sons will all bow down before you. That hasn't happened yet. And so now he's starting to tell the future about starting with Judah. He's saying, Judah, you're going to lead this family. Your tribe of people is going to lead all of these tribes of people. And then it says this weird thing. It says, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So there's, it's obviously pointing to the fact of a scepter and a ruler's staff. You know what a scepter is? Like one of those long staffs that kings have, and they're usually fancy, and right? They point at stuff with them and like slam them when they're mad and like touch them to people's shoulders like they do in the movies, right? That's what the scepter is, right? It's a kingly staff, a sign of authority, a sign of rule. And it says, Judah, you're going to, have, you're going to be in charge. The people from your tribe are going to lead this nation. And so that hasn't happened yet. That's definite future prophecy. But then it says, the scepter won't depart until tribute comes to him. And you're like, him who? Where's the the him? What's the the him? We're not talking about Judah as a person here. We're talking about Judah as a tribe of people. So this singular word him is out of place. You're like, who's him? So if you're reading in the the Hebrew, uh, which you don't have to, uh, but it just basically says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. And this word Shiloh, everybody's like, what the heck is that? Nobody, they don't ever, it's not used anywhere else in your Bible. And so they're trying to figure out what this word Shiloh means. It's used uh, in different terms, but not in terms of a person. And so uh, the, the translators are like, this Shiloh, this This word Shiloh, this title Shiloh signifies a person who deserves tribute, who deserves honor, who deserves glory, who deserves power. And so that's why they translated it until tribute comes to him. It's like he's the guy who deserves the tribute. But it's a a singular masculine. Like this is a a human he that is coming. And for hundreds, maybe thousands of years, people are like, this is the Messiah. 
People who read this, people who believe the Bible, they're like, this is messianic. This is talking about that savior who we talked about was promised all the way at the beginning, who was again promised to come through the seed of Abraham and then promised to come through the families of Jacob. Now Jacob is saying, Judah, he's coming through you guys. He's coming through you guys and you guys are going to rule and you're going to have the authority over the nation of Israel until he comes. So uh, this prophecy forever, people thought it was messianic. And then something crazy happened. In AD 70, the Roman Empire invaded Israel, and they conquered them completely. And it basically, AD 70, they overtook Jerusalem and burned down the temple. And for about 2,000 years, Israel ceased to exist as a nation. Until 1948, when the world got together, it was like, okay, Israel, you can have your land back because they felt bad about the Holocaust. Right? And so in 1948, Israel became a nation again. But for 2,000 years, basically from AD 70 until 1948, there was no nation of Israel. So that means there was no authority, no ruling authority. So whoever this him is, whoever this Shiloh is, whoever was supposed to come, who deserves the tribute, tell Alexa I'm teaching, right? Whoever deserves the tribute needs to have come before AD 70. Was there a savior of the world that came before AD 70? His name was Jesus. And he died, was buried, resurrected about AD 33. And so forever, people thought this was messianic. The Jews, the people who believe the Bible, they're like, this is talking about the Messiah. This is talking about the Messiah. He's, Judah's going to be in charge until this Shiloh, this one who deserves tribute, until he comes. And then all of a sudden, all the authority was taken away. And the Jews are like, nah, we don't believe in Jesus. That, so now they change it. If you talk to a Jew today, they're like, no, we don't believe that's messianic. It's talking about something else. I was like, really? Because all the Jews before AD 70 thought it was messianic. Like, yeah, it's not Jesus. Don't worry about it. Well, we're Christians. We think it definitely was Jesus, right? That's what I believe. Anyway, continuing on. Here's what I want to point out before we move on to the next son in line. Reuben had this unstable character and sexual sin. Simeon and Levi had anger issues and violent sin. Judah, who is next in line and receives the blessing, also had sin. In fact, as you were reading through our story, right, we took a few side tracks, right, as we were talking about Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. Mostly we were sticking with Jacob uh, and, and his family. And then every once in a while, the Bible would be like, Burp, and we'd go on this rabbit trail of like this weird story. And one of them was Reuben, right? Remember Reuben? And it's like, oh, that was weird. Why did he sleep with his father's wife? Like, okay, back to the story. And then, you know, there was one with Simeon and Levi, and they killed this whole city of people. You're like, oh, that was weird. Why, why did it seem fit to tell us about that? And then there's another one in Genesis 38 about a guy named Judah. Do you remember? And Judah, long story short, ends up, his wife dies, and he goes and he sleeps with a prostitute. And it was sinful. And it was wrong. And at the end of it, at the end of chapter 38, uh, the whole thing comes to light. And Judah basically says, you know what? That prostitute's right. I shouldn't have done that. That, that, that. I was wrong. He says, she is more righteous than I. And he humbly repents of his sin. And he says, it says in, in Genesis chapter 38, he didn't do it anymore. So it's interesting. If you talk about these first four sons, Reuben did something awful. But we never see any repentance from him. 
Simeon and Levi do something awful, and we never see any repentance from him. Judah also does something sinful. And at the end of the chapter, we see repentance from him. And that's enough to allow God to give him the blessing. So we see in these first four sons, like it's not perfection that God is looking for, but it is repentance. He's not looking for everybody to do everything right every single time. But when he brings it to your attention that something needs to change, when there's that conviction in your heart, when you hear that prophetic word and he says, hey, this thing over here in your life that's going on that you think is unrelated to everything else that is really hard in your life, it's actually super related and you need to get that fixed. When you hear that and you feel the spirit of God, if you don't change your heart, if you don't take any steps, if you aren't receptive to that at all, that's a bad place to be. Judah is not different than his other brothers in that he was perfect. Judah is different than his, from his other brothers in that he had a soft heart, in that he repented, in that he changed direction. He didn't just continue doing the thing he knew he shouldn't do. And we actually see that over and over in the Bible. The people that God uses aren't perfect people, but they are, um, they, they, they are sensitive to his spirit. They are humble people. They are repenting people. I say this all the time, probably like five or six times a year. We get this idea as Christians that repentance is for the people outside the church. They're all sinners. They need to repent. They need to change. No, 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 no. Read your Bible again. Repentance is for the people that are inside the church. Like we should be the ones repenting, right? Stand on the street corner and say, repent, and see how many people repent. Not very many, right? But I should stand up here and say, repent. And all of us should say, you're right. The word of God is convicting my heart about this or that or this situation or that idol or or whatever it may be. That should be happening within the body of Christ, within the church. And when that happens in here, then people out there can't ignore it. You say, you know what? It's not a bunch of perfect people in that Riverstone Chapel place. But they're authentic. They're not hypocrites. When God convicts their heart of something they're doing wrong, they're on their knees humbly praying that God would forgive them and walking in repentance. That's what should be happening in the church. Somebody say amen. That was really good. And humble. I'm humble. That's one of my gifts. Prophecy and humility. Here we go. We're going to run through the next six sons all at once. Verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his borders shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. These are all names of his sons, by the way. He saw the resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he plowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that the rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich and shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Now, I'm not going to spend a ton of time because I'm running out of time on this, but there is stuff that we, like we have other stuff to cover, but there's some interesting future telling going on here about the tribes that would be next to the ocean or into agriculture or known for luxuries or delicacies. And all of this is at least 500 years before any of these tribes will actually have their land and be where they are. So this is incredible prophecy if you want to look into it. But I want to look at these last two sons real quick. It says this, verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches 
run over the wall. So God calls Joseph here a fruitful bough. Now, a bough is a, a main branch of a tree. It's not the tree, but it's a main branch. Now, see the difference? It doesn't call Joseph a tree because a tree is self-sufficient. A tree can just grow on its own, but a bough cannot grow on its own. A bough has to be connected to the tree. You see, branches, boughs cannot survive on their own. They have to be connected to something that is life-giving. And so we see here the picture of Joseph. Now, if you remember, as we walk through this, Joseph was incredible. Joseph was sold into slavery. Joseph rose up to second in command. Joseph saved his entire family because he was in a place of power and, and privilege and influence. And he gave his family food and gave him land. Like Joseph had an incredible story. But the story was not that Joseph could stand on his own. Joseph was completely dependent on God, right? He wasn't a tree. He was the main branch of the tree. God was the tree. God was supplying Joseph with the ability to do the things he was doing. Look at verse 23. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the, one, by the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. So after this reference of Joseph's strength and dependence upon God, he talks about the enemies of Joseph, and there were quite a few. We read about them as we went through, right? There was Potiphar's wife who falsely accused him of sexual assault. There was uh, his brothers who obviously threw him in a pit. There was a lot of people who were actively against Joseph. But at the end of this, it says this interesting thing. It says he was, at the end of verse 26, look at it with me. He was set apart from his brothers. Why do you set something apart? Why do you set something apart? If I had this here and I was like, oh, don't touch that. Why? It's mine. Right? It's set apart for me. Like it has a purpose. Right? Some of you will go home today, right? And there'll be like a, a pie on the counter. And you'll be like, yeah, pie. And then your wife will be like, no, 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 don't touch that pie. It's not for you. Oh, crap. Right? It's, I made it for so-and-so. Or they had a baby. Or, you know, it's for dinner tomorrow. Or, or whatever. Right? We set things apart when we have a purpose for them. Right? We set things apart, like not intentionally, like don't touch that. Why? I don't know. No, like, nobody does that, right? You set something apart on purpose, intentionally, because you have a function for that set apart thing to fulfill. Jacob knows that Joseph was set apart. Why? To save his entire family. He said, yes, you are completely dependent on God, Joseph, for all the great things that happened, but you were set apart from your brothers, God had a purpose and a function for your life to fulfill. And the crazy thing about it is, if you read through your Bible, you get to the New Testament, when it talks about the followers of Jesus and what their life looks like, it says that all of the followers of Jesus have been set apart. It says not only has this group of people, the body of Christ, the church been set apart, meaning we have a function to fulfill, but you individually have a function to fulfill. You have been set apart. You have a role, a part to play. You have giftings and abilities and circumstances in your life that uniquely equip you to do something that nobody else in this room can do. I love that idea. 
Maybe there's somebody in here this morning and like that's all you needed to hear. Maybe you're like blah, 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 blah. For the last 40 minutes, like, okay, prophecy, cool, you know, weird, don't care about these guys. And then all this was for God to say to you this morning, you have a part to play. I've set you apart. I have something for you to do. You're not here on accident. Like these circumstances that brought you to this church on this morning, Genesis chapter 49, wasn't an accident. I want you to hear that I have not forgotten you. I know exactly where you are. I know exactly what you're doing. I know the exact gifts I gave you. I know the exact circumstances of your life. Now let's go, because I have a part for you to play. Verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, devouring the prey, and at the evening, dividing the spoil. And these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to him as he blessed them, blessing each with his blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to him, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought from the field of Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah, The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And I love this about Jacob. Every time we see Jacob talking for like the last four or five years of his life, he's like, don't forget, take me home. Don't forget, take me to Israel. Remember, they're in Egypt right now. They're living in the best part of the land of Egypt. They have been for the last 17 years. And when Jacob refers to Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and his first wife, Leah, who was Judah's mother, right? He's not saying like, oh, yeah, like I just I love my family. Because remember, God promised Abraham something. So to tie himself back to the promise that God made to Abraham, to tie himself back to this land that's a couple thousand miles away from where he is, he's saying, in essence, like, don't forget what God's doing. Yes, this Egypt place is nice. Yes, this is awesome to be really comfortable for the last 17 years of my life. But do not forget that God is up to something in this world, and our family is set apart. Our family is called to be a part of what God is doing in this world. Take me back there. Take me back there. And that's literally the last thing he says before he dies. Look, verse 33, when he finished saying this, he drew up his feet and breathed his last. He's like, don't forget what God's doing in the world, guys. Don't forget, sons, what legacy we're a part of. Don't forget what God has called us to. Take me back there. So here's where I'll finish this morning. Never forget that God is working in this world. Never forget that God has called you to something. Never forget that your life is a part of a plan of God's to give hope to the hopeless in this world. We say that our mission as a church is to glorify God by helping people know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. Our church exists to make a difference. You hopefully came to church to make a difference. You didn't come to church just to come to church, right? Hopefully you walk out of this place knowing God a little better, walking in a little different kind of freedom, understanding that maybe I am set apart. Man, that's a crazy idea. You mean God hasn't given up on me? No, God hasn't given up on you. He's called you to make a difference in this world. And here's what I love about that plan of God. Even if you just quickly glance at the, the, the sons that we talked about, 
They're all over the map. You have guys who are never told they did anything wrong. We have guys who are royal screw-ups. We have, like, if you just look at the animals, he compares there's a lion, a snake, a donkey, a deer, and a wolf. That's a pretty diverse group of people, right? And even Reuben and Simeon and Levi, the guys at the very beginning that we said they messed up royally, they're not kicked out of the family. They said, yeah, there's consequences to what you did. Yeah, that's never going away. Yeah, like there was an opportunity in front of you. You missed that one. But you're not out of the family. You're not completely erased from what God is doing on this earth. You're still a son. You're still given an inheritance. You're still called by God. There's still a purpose and plan for your life. There's this incredibly diverse group of people that he's calling here this morning. And there's some of you who are listening to this right now, and you need to be awakened to the consequences of your sin. And there's some of you, in another form of diversity, who need to surrender in repentance. And there's some of you who are listening this morning who need to recognize your dependence on God, that you cannot do it all on your own. And there's some of you who God is reminding that you have been set apart And there's some of you God is calling out of your comfort zone to make a difference in this world. And there's some of you who need to be reminded that even though you've made a mess of things in your life, God has not given up on you yet. And I don't know what God is speaking to you this morning, but I do know that if you aren't too prideful to listen, that he is saying something because he's that good and he loves you that much. Amen?